0: Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Addicted to Crime. I am back with another case and I am ready to dive into it with you. Before I begin this episode, I just want to open with a brief disclaimer. During the course of this episode, we will be discussing topics that may be disturbing to some people, including mention of suicide and self-harm. Listener discretion is advised. all are doing well today. I hope you had a great last couple weeks since I last spoke with you. And so I have to say really quickly before we begin, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who's been listening and supporting the show thus far. Y'all rock. Guys, the podcast reached 10,000 downloads and I just had to say I'm humbled by you guys and very thankful for your support. It's definitely been a learning process for me. I've learned what to do, what not to do things I shouldn't put up with, things that I should just let go, and I appreciate your patience as I learn the ins and outs of running this podcast and as I'm still learning. Like, I have a long ways to go. I don't think I'll ever get to perfect because, like, what is perfect really? But it's been fun and I appreciate your support. Also, I want to announce that I am starting a fun new project that I think you'll love, and I'm just going to tease it here a little bit. I am going, well, maybe I won't tease it. Maybe I'll just spill the entire tea. I am going to be doing a Addicted to Crime shorts, and they're going to be on my Instagram and Facebook page. Basically, what it is, is it's just a little kiss, a chef's kiss of true crime, like a small little segment, if you will, that I'm going to be doing on video, so on camera, so you can see my face, and I think you're going to like it. So, it's not going to be deep dive like I normally do on here. I will still continue to do the deep dives, of course. I'm not letting that go, not by a long shot, but this way you can also have, like, little, little teeny tiny cases that I'm going to do. Not small cases, but, uh, like, not a ton of information, if if that makes sense. Okay, okay. Now that I've confused you all, (laughs) let's get into the story. As you saw by the title, today we are talking about the Aurora Theater mass shooting by killer James Egan Holmes. I want to spend the bulk of our time by looking at James's early life, noticing warning signs that were evident along the way, and also I want to take um, the rest of the time to look at the many, many people whose lives were ruined and affected by his actions. So James Egan Holmes was born on December 13th, 1987, in San Diego, California. His mother, Arlene Holmes, described him as a, quote, miracle. According to an article by CNN, she said, quote, He was planned for and wanted and hoped for and prayed for, his mother said. We wanted a child and had one. It was what we prayed for, end quote. And while he was growing up, he went by the nicknamed Jimmy. Now, his father, Robert Holmes, had many degrees from different universities, such as UC Berkeley and Stanford, and he worked as a mathematician and a scientist. His mother worked as a registered nurse, and James was raised, as I'm sure you can understand, in a home that majorly valued education. He was always pushed to do well, always encouraged to succeed, learn, learn, learn more, dive into information, and he did that. He was always on the honor roll at school and he would later say, quote, lots of hugs and quote about his life growing up with his family. They spent lots of times together on trips and vacations to Disney World, the beach. They went camping and explored their home state. They were always busy and always spending time together, it seemed. James's mother made the family eat together every single night. She thought that was very important and his dad even coached his soccer team. So, he never suffered from abuse or neglect from his family. Like so many other people that we've studied, unfortunately, do. He really didn't have that rocky, uh, troubling childhood. He did have a moment where his parents became a little concerned with him, and that was when he was eight years old. His parents took little Jimmy to a counselor, and the reason they did this is because James was, quote, very Nintendo-oriented socialized poorly at home and sometimes through his toys, end quote. And it was very nerve-wracking to him. They thought it was very odd behavior. And honestly, like, that sounds, that right there sounds like a typical eight-year-old boy to me, but maybe they just saw something that didn't sit right with them. Maybe, maybe they just had something bugging them or eating at them the wrong way. You know, we can't really know. It's hard to judge, um, just looking in like this, but they did the right thing. They took them him to get counseling just to see what was going on. Either way, the counselor didn't notice anything amiss about James's behavior either, and so he was sent on his way. James had one sibling. He had a sister named Chris and the two of them were very, very close. He doted on her like an older brother should. He read her stories, they played together They had lots of adventures, just the two of them and their dog, a lab retriever named Zuby, which is adorable, and a Scotty named Wimby, were just a couple of the dogs that they had growing up in their family. And they were both raised mainly in Oak Hills, Catroville, California. Excuse me, that's a mouthful. It was a quiet, more rural suburban area of California, a a great place to raise a family, they didn't go back to San Diego until James had turned 12, but James hated the idea of moving from Oak Hills back to San Diego. He felt his life was being ruined. You know how it is when you make friends and you basically grow up in one place. You don't want to leave it. You feel like your, your world's going to end. Like, I know exactly how that is. I grew up in Florida and we moved to Wisconsin when I was 10, or excuse me, when I was like eight. So I know exactly how that was. That was pretty much um, James's age. And he did not take it well. He, when they left the home and started the moving process, he even sadly tried to self-harm. In school, though, he was very smart. He excelled and he was thought of as a prodigy child 100%. He was just way above average and doing very well in school. James enjoyed sports. He played soccer and ran cross country when he was in high school. And all this sounds very normal, right? Like picture perfect kid growing up in a typical white family environment, right? Like this sounds normal. He sounds like he had a great childhood. So what happened? Like I'm sure you know something about this case. You know the atrocities that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And, And if not that, you know by the title that something just goes really wrong. Are we going to see, like, a red flag event happen that could somehow pinpoint why and how he grew up to be this mass murderer? Is there any mental illness present? And the answer to that question is yes. In an article by TFP, they say that he suffered from mental illness and he tried to kill himself when he was only 11. His family tree also shows some signs of mental illness as well back in the family line. James's aunt, so that would be his dad's sister, suffered from some variable of schizophrenia according to the book The Dark Knight in Aurora. James's grandfather, this would be his dad's dad, so the other side of, or same side of the family here, also suffered from mental illness. He was even admitted to a hospital for what was described as, quote, disabling obsessive compulsive disorder, end quote. Now, on the other side of his family, on his mother's side, James's grandpa was allegedly hospitalized after suffering long bouts of depression and psychosis. And the psychosis here on his mother's side is really interesting because that's what he's thought to have suffered from and he self-diagnoses himself as suffering from later on. When James was 14 in October 2001, the parents sought counseling for him again because he wasn't handling the move back to San Diego well at all. He wasn't making any friends. He had become quiet and withdrawn, and it was really worrying his parents. This was not typical 14-year-old boy behavior. Unfortunately, not much was done during the sessions that he had. There really wasn't much that he could do. He wasn't put on any medication, and it was just kind of quickly swept away. Now, James attended church services and church events with his family pretty regularly. He didn't hardly miss any service. He would later say, however, that the teachings, they didn't really move him and he kind of felt indifferent to what he was hearing. It just didn't bother him one way or another. When James was in high school, he started having more troubling thoughts, but he didn't tell anyone those thoughts. He started thinking heavily of nuclear bombs, which I know it's like, what, where'd that come from? Like, what the crap? Like, that's kind of a lot. And yeah, it is. Like, all of a sudden, it just seems like he started thinking of bombing and destruction right around this time in high school. And he just he just had this infatuation with causing mayhem and causing harm to others. Right around this time in high school, he started thinking about killing people and he started imagining people dying around him. Not normal behavior and something he definitely needed some kind of treatment for. James experienced heavy feelings of anxiety but he said he didn't cope with it well. I know that is like a normal teenager, young adult thing. I get that, but you need to, you need to find a way to cope. You need to find someone to help keep you accountable when you're feeling those feelings. And he said he didn't really have anyone. He didn't want to confide in anyone. He often pushed those feelings away or he used defense mechanisms that aren't mentally healthy when you're struggling with this. When James Holmes was a teenager, he would later say that he recognized something was wrong with his mind. But he didn't know the correct terms to call it so he refers to it as quote broken brain end quote and he refers to his broken brain a lot through this through this time here he's really trying to figure out why he isn't quote unquote normal and what's wrong with him but as he's struggling with this on the inside he really didn't seek help at at the time from his family on the outside he was afraid if he told his mother she'd reject him and he was afraid that she'd pull away from him and, and he just couldn't bear the thought of her pulling away from him and leaving him. He just could not take it. James applied to the University of California Riverside and he did really well there. He got a full ride scholarship to go there and he got to go there through by way of an honors program. James had an interest in the inner workings of the human mind and he really was wanting to go into Neuroscience. Remember, he's thinking that he has a broken mind and he's wondering why he's feeling all these thoughts. And so neuroscience seemed like the place to go to get those answers. While in school, he and a partner worked on a project that involved, quote, writing computer codes for an experiment relating to humans' perceptions of time, end quote. Now, the book, The Dark Knight in Aurora, which, I, of course, will link in the show notes I highly recommend you guys read, This book mentions that the media would later call this uh, project that him and his partner worked on time travel and an interest in time travel. Basically, they were blowing it up, as the media usually does. They were just wanting this to be more exciting and crazy than this project actually was, just making for better headlines, basically. He was not involved in time travel. He was writing computer codes for experiments on humans' minds, so a little bit different there. (laughs) He had a thought that everyone in the world would be better off if someone just died. Let me say that again. He had a thought that everyone in the world would be better off if someone would just die. And I mean, that makes me really sad. Like, just thinking of that thought process that he came that conclusion in his mind like it doesn't make any sense And, and that's good like it's completely nonsensical but that's the point isn't it like he has some mental health issues James spent much of his college life studying but he still made some time for social events and his friends didn't notice any peculiar or disturbing behavior from him at this point he never had a girlfriend in college he went on two insignificant dates but that was kind of it he was interested in women, but he really didn't know how to maintain a relationship. He enjoyed being around kids, which is always so interesting. He worked as a counselor at a camp at one time, and he volunteered at an orphanage other times. He was, like I said, super interested in kids, loved being around kids and working with kids. And in retrospect, that is really making me uncomfortable. But at the time, you know, he was, he was really good at it. Even at this time, while he was in college, the early years of college, he was still fighting with himself with the violent thoughts that would crowd his mind multiple times a day. He was convinced of flaws that he had, that he had to fix, and he even became obsessed with those flaws. He ended up graduating summa cum laude from UC Riverside, which is amazing. And then it was time to enter the workforce and try to get a job. After college, James moved back into his parents' home. He tried to get a job from there, but he struggled for a bit, and unfortunately, he fell into a habit of sleeping in late, playing video games, watching TV all day, basically oblivious to the world going on around him. And obviously, that's not bad, like, everyone gets, like, an off year, let's say but he's just in this very poor state and I don't think it did him any help with his mental health because he just didn't care. He was just tired. He just wanted to live off his parents and he just didn't want to go into the workforce and he was kind of like in this really bad place. His parents were encouraging him to like get out like come on let's start your life man like you know do something and at one point his mom even was like look if you don't start Paying rent or don't get a job, you know, I'm gonna kick you out. I'm not gonna let you live off of me anymore, which is, you know, good for her. But that did make him really upset and but it made him upset, but it encouraged him to get a job. So it 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 did what it was meant to do, let's say. He his first job was working at a dietary supplement factory. And while he was working there, his employers, fellow employees said, you know, he was very hardworking, he was quiet. But he did the job well he didn't really have anything that stuck out you know as odd but he he only worked there for about three months before quitting it just wasn't doing it for him he wanted to go to graduate school but he was having a hard time getting colleges to accept him so he was smart and perfect on paper like the application looked good but when the interviewers like were talking to him and interviewing him for different colleges they got a bad feeling about him in person He was turned down again and again at many different colleges. He was finally accepted at one college and chose to go to Colorado and attend at Ann Schultz Medical Campus. He was aiming to get into a neuroscience program. That was his degree. He was going to further that, and he was very interested in that field. In one of the classes that he was in, they had to experiment on gerbils, and it was James's job to humanely kill the animals. And there isn't mention from any co-workers that he seemed to enjoy it or take like a weird sick pleasure from it in any way, at least outwardly. So I mean that's that's good, I guess. Like I hate that we experiment on animals, but like moving on. James moved to Colorado. April 28, 2011, and he settled in the city of Aurora. Now, in 2011, starting in about February, March, he had begun seeing things. He called them shadows, and he said the shadows would appear out of the corner of his eye, and it was starting to affect his day-to-day, and honestly, at this point in the beginning of 2011, this is really where we start to see him spiral. Like, this is the beginning of just a a very big shift in his behavior, and so let's talk really quick about some warning signs. In the year that James Holmes would kill the people at the theater early that spring, friends and family noticed that there was a definite shift, like I said, in his behavior. He stopped being loud and outspoken. He stopped sharing jokes or making crude and obnoxious comments like, you know, like people do. He didn't leave the house as much, and he started receiving huge big packages regularly at his door, which that fact alone, like, you know, it's not weird. Like, Lord knows the Amazon guy and I are on a first-name basis, but in the context of what James would later do, it's very troubling because we know now that these packages that were arriving at his home were boxes of ammunition boxes and boxes and boxes of it thousands of dollars worth of ammunition now he started seeing a therapist at this time at the request of his excuse me of his on-again off-again girlfriend and i'm going to read his therapist's notes it's from the book, um, The Dark Knight in Aurora. Again, I highly recommend it. And I'm going to read her notes on James to you right now. This quote came from Margaret Roth, MSW. She's, an a, uh, she's a counselor at the CU Denver Student Health Service. And he started talking to her because of these anxiety feelings he was feeling and how he had broken up with his girlfriend and it just wasn't going well. And she made this comment and she said, quote, I, Roth, would like to, would have to report him. He says that he wants to kill other people, but no one in particular and has never done any harm to others. It was very hard to interview him as he would just stare and take a long time to answer. He said it was very hard for him to come in, end quote. And that was taken from Margaret Roth's notes of March 16th, 2012. So, right away, these um, counselors, and later he's going to see a psychiatrist, they started to notice troubling signs and also, like, the staring into space. Like, he would be talking with someone and all of a sudden look up and, like, almost like he's looking at someone behind your soldier's shoulder, which is really creepy, and he would kind of just have this, like, blank stare, this blank expression. Now, in May of that year, according to an article by the New York Times, he allegedly confided to a friend that he wanted to kill people, quote, when his life was over, end quote. He also showed another friend a weapon that he had bought, saying it was for his protection. Now, it's alarming enough behavior to those surrounding him that people were noticing, His psychiatrist at the time, Dr. Lynn Fenton, shared her worries with his college saying that he could be a danger in the future and sadly she was so right. As far as his communication with others went, quote, he would basically communicate with me in one-word sentences. He always seemed to be off in his own world which did not involve other people as far as I can tell, and that was from someone in his neuroscience program and that's according to a New York Times article as well. His psychiatrist, Dr. Lynn Fenton, prescribed medication to try and help him, and while he didn't make all of his appointments all the time, like, he was pretty good at making them all, but some he would miss, he still took his uh, prescriptions regularly. Like, that he did take. There was never a time, like, where he went off of his medication. Now, let's talk about when he starts buying weapons. He purchased his first weapon from Amazon. According to the book, he purchased a taser that was disguised as a cell phone, and also purchased a Smith & Wesson folding knife. Later in May, he purchased two grenade-style tear gas canisters. He also bought a gas mask. He bought a Glock 2240 caliber handgun. He also purchased a hollow point and saber cartridge. And according to the book, that makes the, the gun way more lethal. And I'm not that familiar um, with things like that. So I'm sorry, I'm doing my best to <laughs> pronounce everything right. He became focused at this time with what he would call his mission. His mission was basically taking as many lives as he could at one time. Yeah, he hoped this would help his depression and also stop him from completing suicide. So, he thought that by taking other people's lives, it would help him not take his own life. And he would later admit the selfishness of this idea, but he said, quote, it was necessary to do what was in my best interest, end quote. James bought another gun, a tactical Remington 870 12-gauge shotgun. And at this time, too, he's buying all these weapons. He's spending so much money on weapons that he stopped studying for very important exams in his graduate classes. He said that it didn't matter if he passed or failed because he had his mission to complete and it would either end with him in jail or him dead. So he's like, what's the point of studying? Studying doesn't matter. James began spending more and more time playing video games too, which again, not weird, but in context, it could be wrong and bad. He ended up spending up to 100 hours a week. So, he went from getting fantastic grades, doing well in school, having friends, to not having as many friends, not spending time with his friends, acting weird, not doing well at school, not studying, spending more time on video games. So, obviously, you can see this like descent on the staircase going downward. It's going towards not not a good place. So, the book mentions that his psychologist, even though they were very concerned with his behavior, they didn't have enough to commit him to a mental institution. If they had tried to send him to a mental institution, a judge would have most likely blocked that because it goes against his constitutional rights. So you can't really blame his psychologist at this time. I have to point that out. There are other times where they, they try to do things, but they just can't. And they even reach out to his family when he gets really, really bad. And But their hands are tied. They're, they really couldn't do anything. James also, remember and remember, before I keep going, he hasn't done anything illegal at this point. He's just talked about doing things illegal and talked about harming people, but he didn't go any into specifics. He didn't say who. He didn't say when. He didn't say how. He just said that he wants to harm people. James bought another gun, a 223 caliber rifle. He later installed a red low light or like a red taser light that had night vision with the scope onto that rifle. Normal by itself, again, but knowing what happened is super, super ominous and very, very scary. And James failed his prelims, and at this time, he withdrew from the university. His his professors were reaching out, like, James, you have potential. You can do this. Like, uh, message us back. We'll get in touch. Like, we'll help you complete this. But he, he was done. He was done with this education. He drew back from his friends. He said no to the professors he didn't even regularly contact his parents anymore um which is very odd very out of his behavior because he was very close with his family and his sister but he did respond to them when like they'd reach out to him mainly through email but he just didn't initiate conversation with them anymore now i'm going to read some more of his psychiatrist notes from the book the dark knight in aurora i'm going to read that to you right now this is from his psychiatrist dr lynn fenton she said, quote, James appears to be intermittently functioning at a psychotic level. He may be shifting insidiously into a frank psychotic disorder, such as schizophrenia, though he does not have the more rapid worsening of functions typical of most psychotic breaks. His fear, hatred of humans has markedly impaired him. He does not currently meet criteria for a mental health hold. He is not gravely disabled and has no evidence of suicidal ideation, longstanding homicidal ideation, but denies any specific targets, and there is no evidence that he is angry at the grad school or anyone else for his failure. He has made many hostile remarks to myself and Dr. Feinstein, but no threats, no evidence of past violent actions." At the time, the psychiatrist was knowing all of these warning signs and, like, recognizing all of this stuff. James started keeping a journal or a diary and started writing down his feelings and his plan more specifically about how he wanted the mission to go. He wrote in this journal for about a six-week period pretty regularly. He spoke practically about how he would complete his mission, how he could kill the maximum amount of people before he could be stopped. And his, his journal is really ominous. I'm going to include a couple snapshots of it in um, my social medias. But it's, it's it's very ominous, like his journal is. It's, it's a real peek into his mind. He strangely dedicated this journal to his parents. Like literally in the front of the journal, he actually wrote a dedication page. And get this. So the day of the shooting, he mailed this journal to his psychiatrist the day of the shooting. When later asked why he would have sent it to a psychiatrist, like, why did he do that? He said, oh, well, maybe they can use it to help people. And also said that he wanted them to know his mind and thoughts going into the crimes he would commit. So it's kind of like a snub in their face, like, hey, you weren't treating me. Here's what I was feeling. Here's what I planned. One interesting and so, so wrong ideology that James Holmes had was he believed in human capital. Now, don't come at me if you believe in this. If you believe in this, yikes, and I have some serious feelings about it, but, you know, it's your right to believe whatever you want. Anyways, if you aren't sure what human capital means, this is what James Holmes at least took it to mean. He thought that people were valued and had a labeling or a number, let's say. One person equaled one point. And so if you killed a person, you took on their point. And so it adds to your point. So, the book describes this as, like, a notch on a belt. Like, one life is another notch on the belt. James believed if he killed many people, then he would get many notches. And it's just so perverted. And, like, I can't think of a scenario at all where that makes sense or isn't wrong. But that's what he believed in. And he wrote extensively about human capital in his journal. In his journal, he tried to diagnose himself using sites from the internet, and some of the diagnoses that he came up with included schizophrenia, ADHD, Asperger syndrome, or autism, restless leg syndrome. Basically, he just labeled himself as having everything in the book. Like, he literally, those are only a couple things he labeled himself as having in that journal, but there's, there's many others. Later in June, he spent another $1,000 on buying more ammunition, preparing for his violent mission. But that soon became thousands more. I think he ended up spending like $20,000 or something on ammunition and, and materials that he needed for his quote-unquote mission. He bought a combat ballistic helmet, an urban assault vest, more ammo, ballistic pants and chaps, neck and groin protectors, other body armors. He was escalating and this would soon catapult into a situation that he couldn't return from. There was no going back once he started this which is sad because there's always 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 time to go back always he even at this time he has not done anything yet anything wrong but in his mind he once he started this once he failed his exams he was like oh I guess I'm not meant to do this life I'm gonna have to do this instead and that's just wrong like he had a choice and he just sadly made the wrong choice you know to put it lightly his mother spoke to him on July 4th, and that was the last time she spoke with him before the shooting. His parents, of course, you know, didn't know what was going on. They were just worried for him and for his well-being. They knew he had dropped out of school. They had a call from his psychiatrist, Dr. Lynn Fenton, and they knew he was troubled. They even sent, his parents were so sweet, they even sent him deposits of money to help because they thought, you know, he must be searching for a job. He must not know what's going on. So they literally sent him money to like last until he found this job but he was spending that money on ammunition he purchased another Glock 40 caliber pistol in the journal you read through his thought process all the time and it's his thoughts are like how can I inflict the most pain how can I get the highest body count he decided against bombing he didn't like serial killing because of the low kill count and the increased risk of getting caught before he massed that many kills And he decided on mass murder or spree killing because he thought he could get, quote, maximum casualties, easily performed with firearms, although primitive in nature, no fear of consequences, being caught 99% certain, end quote. And that is from his own words that are his own, that's his own mind coming up with that scenario when deciding which method he was going to use and where he was going to do, he kind of thought about maybe going to an airport. He was, he was not sure between an airport or a movie theater, but he said about the airport, quote, too much of a terrorist history. Terrorism isn't the message. The message here is there is no message. Most fools will interpret correlation for causation, namely relationship and work failure as causes. Both were expediting catalysts, but not the reason the causation being my state of mind for the past 15 years, end quote, which of course he's saying, you know, I'm killing because of my life, I guess is the simplest, most pathetic way to put that, but that's what he's saying. James Holmes chose the Century 16 movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, because the security would be basically non-existent, you know, especially as compared to an airport, and it was a very large building. It was always busy, and he knew that the death toll would be high. The damage he would cause would be extreme. The book describes how he cases the theaters extensively. He was familiar with it before, like he had gone there casually before, but now with his mission in mind, he needed to get all of the information, he needed to know the layout, and he found out the layer, the layout of the building, the exits, the inner workings of the building. He even went as far as planning where moviegoers would try to escape once he started shooting, and how he could stop them, how he could trap them in the auditorium. And he even calculated the response time from the Aurora Police Department, seeing how long he would have after he started shooting until they got there, and, and it was scary accurate. James Holmes was convinced that he'd find some kind of psychological relief by killing people. Now, July 16th, he starts um, putting more plans in motion. He started laying traps or booby traps in his apartment by way of bombs, which he found out how to make and assemble on the Internet, which is scary. He spent days doing this, laying traps, setting up weapons and bombs all around his apartment. And just think, guys, like he's laying his bed at night, with all these weapons in his home that, that, you know, that could go off. Like, how does he know he's putting them together correctly? Like, that's just psychotic right there. He took some pictures of the weapons and armor he'd be wearing that were laid out on his bed, and I'll show you those pictures on social media as well. And he also took some selfies. One of the selfies, there's actually two of the selfies, are super disturbing. He bought some, what they're called, spirit lenses. They kind of make your eyes go dark and weird, kind of like a devilish look. And he took some pictures of him wearing these lenses and he had these pictures on his phone and he was holding different weapons while wearing these lenses. He knew the media would see them. He knew they would eventually get a hold of them. And people like us are going to be greatly disturbed by them, which we are because he looks like a straight up demon. Just wait till you see it. Oh my goodness. James set up a CD player in the apartment and he turned, he kind of got it set so that at a specific time, the volume would go all the way up. So, his neighbors would complain and then police would be called and then police would enter his home. So, he had this all planned out. Like, he was literally drawing people to his apartment to cause as much harm to the police who entered his house as he could. And not to mention all the people in the apartment building. Holmes would claim that if he kept seeing his psychiatrist Like, maybe he wouldn't have committed the murders, but that's just bogus. That's just a flat-out attempt at an excuse to separate himself from this horrible thing that he did. He already, the, 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 his insurance people, or excuse me, his psychiatrist already said when he lost his insurance after college, they are like, hey, we'll still see you, you know, even without insurance, and his parents offered to pay for it several times. So, the excuse that he can't afford it, so he can't get the kind of psychiatrist help that he needs. That's just a flat-out excuse. He's just trying to shift the blame on them, you know, like the killings were their fault for a mistreatment or diagnosis or a misdiagnosis, and that's just a flat no from me, a big fat no, just an excuse. Again, he's, he's deflecting here. He's trying to move this horrible, horrible event off of him and onto somebody else. Now, I'm going to read his last journal entry before the killings to you right now. He has two sections in this last journal entry. The first one, uh, the first section on this page is kind of heading, and the heading says faith. What kind of God commands his people not to murder, yet cowers behind free will? And then the second um, thing that he said. It's set up by reason. He t- entitled it reason and he said the reason why life should exist is as arbitrary as the reason why it shouldn't. Life shouldn't exist end quote and if that doesn't show you the the depth that his mind is in then I don't think anything will. Now let's talk about the mission, and I hate saying it, but it's what he called it, his mission, his murder mission. Now, Friday, June 20th, at 11 p.m., he took some pain prescription painkillers, hydrocodone, in case he got shot, so he was preparing himself for that, preparing his body for that. He loaded the car with his gear, he loaded the weapons, and he started the loud playing CD music to alert the neighbors. And, it, and the people at his apartment, 1690 Paris Street, they did call the police. They heard the music playing at this insane hour of the night. And they did call the police saying, you know, this guy's in his apartment playing loud music. He set the trip wire before he had left and he doused the floor of his apartment with gasoline ready for the officers that he knew would be stopping by at some point. And the neighbors called the Aurora police. That first phone call happened at 12.10 a.m. to report that music. Now, he drove with all of his gear and ammunition and weapons to the theater, and he parked his car near the exit for Auditorium 9 and then walked in the front door of the theater. You can see this on um, police has re- uh, had released footage of him walking into the theater, scanning his ticket, going on in. He walks into the Auditorium 9, and then you see him there, and he stops and pretends that someone's calling him, so he has to take this call. So he walks back out, and he props the exit door open from Auditorium 9 and props it open with, like, this towel. And a few witnesses did attest to seeing this actually happening. Now, James went to his car, and that's when he started getting ready. He put on his tactical armor um, and he loaded his guns and he was preparing. But before he left his car, he surprisingly called a mental health hotline number that he had saved several days ago. But he said that the call didn't go through. Later on, when asked about this, the person who answered his call that night said she could tell someone was on the other line, but that person didn't say anything and just hung up. I don't know how you want to interpret that. Maybe as a final call out for help. Uh, and what might have happened if he if he had talked to someone that night? Like, what would have, have stopped him? Would these people not have lost their lives or had their lives ruined? We can never know. We can only speculate. But I really, really wish he had been able to get a hold of at least someone, if not just to talk his feelings out, talk him down. Maybe they could have called the theater and warned them. We can't speculate because, you know, he had his mind pretty much made up that this is what he was going to do. But in Holmes' mind, not getting an answer on this hotline solidified that he's going to go through with this massacre because that was his mission. He put uh, headphones in his ears, he turned on loud techno music from his iPod, and once he was all ready to go, he re-entered the auditorium through the propped open door. And I want to include another trigger warning. These next details, um, excuse me, are very, very dark. Um just the thought of this happening like I go to movie theaters all the time and it's dark and you're focused on this loud screen and this huge loud screen and just the thought of this happening just it literally freaks me out and I can't imagine I cannot imagine being there when James Holmes walked in with his armor on all decked out in black, carrying these weapons. Immediately after entering, he threw his tear gas canister at a group of people in the building, and a few people saw it flying through the air. But some people said that maybe someone was being stupid or pulling a prank, and sadly that wasn't the case. He started shooting his shotgun, spraying into the dark room full of people who couldn't escape, and he kept shooting until he ran out of ammo. Once that gun ran out of ammo, he then dropped that gun on the floor, held up another weapon, and shot into the crowd with that weapon. Some people would later say that they thought there were multiple shooters because of the frequency that the shots were fired, and it was very dark and it was hard to see. Holmes would later say that he couldn't see well with his his mask on, and the shots were all random, but that's a a flat-out lie. He easily saw who he fired at, he shot at people who were running away or trying to escape. He purposely hit at people or shot at people who were trying to duck behind the chairs and just get to safety. It wasn't methodical, it was evil, and it was not random at all. He felt no emotion as he showered the crowds of people with bullets. Not a care in the world and he had an eerie calm. He was calm and stone-faced as he killed mothers, children, fathers, grandfathers, boyfriends, and wounding so many people and ruining so many people's lives. When people would scream and duck behind the seats, he'd shoot through the seats, striking the terrified people. He'd walk up and down the aisles shooting at anyone who moved and anyone he could get to. The only reason he stopped firing is because his gun jammed, because he had incorrectly overloaded the guns magazine because he's an idiot and not the gun professional that he thought and he proclaimed that he was. He's an idiot. And he was just disappointed that he couldn't continue upping up his kill count gag, gross, sick, yuck. And at that point, he decided that he should leave. Now, the first 911 call happened at 1239, and over 42 emergency calls to 911 occurred from the theater that night. And police were dispatched within minutes of the call, but, but then, by the time they had arrived, Holmes was out of the auditorium. Now, I'm going to be playing some audio from 911 calls for you guys, and I'm also going to be playing some police, um, uh, uh, po- um, police talking to each other um, through their walkies at this time, too, and talking to headquarters about what's going on, about what they're seeing, Um, And I just want you to hear kind of just the seriousness of what's going on, as well as just the level of fear that was happening. And this is the police. This is like they they're hardened, you know, like they've experienced something like this before, but they've never experienced this kind of loss and this kind of evil in one space before. And so I just want you to hear um, I'm going to be playing a couple one right after another. So I just want you to hear um, what's going on right now at this time.
1: Crime in progress or life-threatening emergency? Yes, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just out, okay, you is this the Century in- 16's theater shooting? No, do you know yes. anybody who's been shot? I don't, okay, you know, who's been shot? Where, who do you know that's been she shot? So, um, my my children. Okay, where are they right now? You're gonna on the floor it. Are they on the <laughs> Theater, table side, Got a suspect in a gas mask, hold the air one second, cars with that wet car in the rear of the lot, is that a suspect? Yes, we got rifles, gas mask, he's detained right now, I've got an open door going into the theater. Okay, hold that position, hold your suspect. Christine, I got seven down in Theater 9, seven down! So we can 25, everybody on this. It's an assault rifle. We have we have a magazine down inside, so we watch out for the assault rifle. All right, so the guy's still in theater and I, am working on the backboard right now for that female. A hey, uh, suspect is going to be a male, unknown race, black camo out- type outfit. I believe to be wearing a vest, gas mask, and multiple long guns.
2: The first sign of trouble came in at 12.39 a.m.
1: 3.15 and 3.14 for a shooting at Century Theaters, 14300 East Alameda Avenue. They're saying somebody's shooting in the auditorium. There is at least one person that's been shot, but they're saying there's
2: hundreds of people just running around. Three minutes later, the first officers arrive on the scene.
1: 4.53, I have a party shot here. I need rescue no, hot.
2: Later, officers try to make their way into theater nine, but notice heavy smoke. Gas in your Less than a minute later, multiple officers make requests for gas masks so they can enter the theater. Do
1: we have gas masks available. Any units that can bring gas masks to theater nine? Again, we need gas masks. Get us some
2: Minutes later, at 12.47 a.m., officers finally start to make their way into that theater.
1: We need rescue inside the auditorium, multiple victims. I got seven down in Theater 9, seven down. I've got a child victim, I need rescue at the back door of Theater 9 now.
0: At
2: the time this is going on inside, outside police are tracking down the suspect.
1: I need a mort core behind the theater, stable side, got a suspect
2: in a gas mask. Less than a minute later, they move in. Cars with that white car in the rear of the lot. Is that a suspect? Yes, we got it. rifles, gas masks. Okay, hold that position. Hold your suspect. And as some officers zero in on the suspect, others scramble to save lives.
1: I need rescue a stage in the Dillard's lot. I need as many ambulances as we can to the Dillard's lot.
2: Help not arriving fast enough.
1: I want my fire trucks there also, and I'll start bringing them in to triage people and get them out. I'm taking one man to the hospital. Cars this too. I need
2: more help. Three minutes later, still not enough help for all the victims. I've
1: got one ambulance here. Where my ambulance
2: is at? Finally, cop cars turn into ambulances in a rush to save lives. Do
1: I start taking some of these victims via, via car? I got a whole bunch of people shot out here. No rescue. Yeah, blow them up, get them in cars, get them out of
0: here. I know that was a lot to hear. It was hard to hear I have listened to that multiple times and I was still tearing up as I was listening to it again just now but let's real quick um, talk about what we just listened to that first call that was, um, a lot was from Kaylin Bailey she was a teenage cousin and she was the girl talk I know that one was the probably the hardest one to hear she was talking about her two t- other cousins that were shot and you can really hear, like, the pandemonium going on inside the theater. You can hear everyone freaking out. You can hear coughing. That stuck out to me, too, because the tear gas is very debilitating. They were coughing in there. And I also heard someone yell, there's a child. And that was a lot. Um, And in the next one, the next video was acquired by CNN. You hear um, another 911 call, and that was played by Um, In court during the court proceedings later on, and the last um, audio clip that was from the Denver Channel. This is Channel Seven, and that is where I acquired um, Denver Seven, the number channel. That's where I acquired this audio. I'll link it in the show notes so you can listen to it and find it as well. But it's very compelling. It's it just really hearing what's going on just really adds to just the gravity of this situation. Now. Their officers are at the scene. They're trying to secure the scene. They're trying to get the victims' help. Over 130 law enforcement officers are at the scene within minutes. And they once they're there, they immediately call for backup, too, and they need help with removing the bodies. And that's what you heard, I'm sure, um, with waiting for the emergency vehicles to get there. And according to CNN, unfortunately, it took so long for the EMTs to get there because they were stopped by a rush of wounded moviegoers leaving the theater so they they couldn't rush past these injured people to get to other people they said that they just couldn't do that and unfortunately, the people outside the theater were, you know, less injured, let's say, like they were still able to walk and, or at least get to help, whereas the EMTs really needed to go inside to get the people who were in more critical condition. But with this delay, they weren't over there. They didn't get um, ambulances to that theater for 24 minutes after the shooting. It took 24 minutes for the ambulances to arrive, to arrive at the back auditorium nine door. It was just absolutely chaos. And I'm sure as you heard, police officers were like, hey, we just need to take people to the hospital. Like, do we have permission to take people to the hospital? And they did have permission. So police cars, um, patrol cars were taking people to the hospital as they were waiting for the ambulances. Now, at this time, two officers, Officer Jason Sweeney and Officer Jason Oviatt, sees Holmes. They saw Holmes removing his body armor by his car. And they saw, at first they thought he was an officer, but then they saw that he had a non-police-issued gas mask. And he had the weapons and he was wearing this armor, and they immediately arrested him. And Holmes said later on that he thought about shooting at them um, when they approached But he said that he decided against it because he he thought that they would kill him. Which, you know, funny that he's worried about his safety from gunshots, but didn't give any regard to the hundreds of lives he ruined when he sprayed them with bullets. He's such a coward. Thankfully, though, he didn't hurt the two officers. He complied and he put on his cuffs. At the station, he knew what he was doing. He immediately asked for a court-appointed attorney. He didn't talk. He didn't give them anything. Later on, while he was incarcerated, when he found out that he, one of the people that he killed was a child, he told officers he was, quote, remorseful, end quote, about that. And he said that he chose this midnight showing, um, of this, of this, um, rated of this movie of the Dark Knight Rises, the Batman series, because he didn't want any children's deaths. So he thought that this premiere of this movie at this time frame, he would have, you know, he wouldn't have children there. Not to, not to mention that, like, whatever, that weird logic aside. Yeah, maybe you won't have young children there, even though you did. But you had some people's children there. Like, who cares if they were a couple years old or 20 or 50 or 60 or 80, they are someone's kids they're humans I just hate that logic that he was like I was trying not to kill a kid like I was trying that's horrible and that's horrible and I really don't have anything else to add to that like that you I'm sure aren't thinking of and adding yourselves so uh authorities had to look at his home first he had set up in his apartment a five foot long trip wire attached his apartment door to a frying pan and it was riddled with explosives and remember there's gasoline all over the floor so officers had to go in first with a pole camera to kind of see what's going on and then they sent in a bomb disposal robot first to clear the room to get sort of a safe path marked for investigators and a safe path for the bomb squad to enter without triggering any of the booby traps he had left care was greatly taken to open Holmes's package to Dr. Fenton. Remember, he sent Dr. Fenton his journal, and they knew that it had been sent, and and they couldn't be sure what was in it. This guy was a maniac, like, who, maybe he was trying to send a bomb, but they soon found out, you know, it was, it wasn't harmful. It was just the journal, and he also sent $400, and the dollar bills had been, like, tinged, burnt a little bit on the corners, which we're not sure what that meant like what the symbolism of that meant it's just very random behavior james holmes was sent to the arapahoe county detention facility awaiting his trial and due to the extreme nature of his crimes he was kept away from the general population for his own safety i'm sure as you can imagine it's highly publicized event he put up some pictures of his family in his cell but then he started receiving other mail he started receiving love letters and pictures from his female fans. Yes, I said that right. James Egan Holmes, mass murderer at the Aurora Movie Theater, had fans. I'm going to go off here a little bit. I will never, ever, ever understand this as long as I live. If you are someone who writes letters of love and adoration, to convicted murderers, to people who hurt children, or to who ruin families, to any of these guys, honestly. How dare you write these letters? What a slap in the face to the victims, the victims' families, who are affected by this horrible excuse for a human. How dare you? James would even receive pictures of women in suggestive poses, scant clothing, tied up anything and everything disgusting he would receive from these women who adored him now pornography is banned in the prison so when they'd censor his mail they'd have to throw thousands of pictures away that's right i said thousands he got thousands of fan letters by the demented women desperate to fill an emptiness inside of them he also received money from these fans and in the three years he was there he received about four thousand dollars all from his fan base Women who do this, and I know there's many who do this, there's a term that actually describes this. Now, I wasn't super interested in it, but I looked into it briefly. It's called hyperstophilia, and this is a sexual interest or attraction to those who commit violent crimes. There's thought to be different causes of this, including, but not excluding, low self esteem, maybe lack of a father figure, maybe they see the killer as a lonely little boy who they need to show love and nurture. Or also, it could be, you know, wanting media attention or their 10 minutes of fame from loving a convicted killer. Like, who knows? Now, Richard Ramirez um, received fan mail. He's another serial killer who I did cover. Um, he's the Night Stalker. And Jeffrey Dahmer, who I haven't covered yet, also received fan mail from women, which is odd because Jeffrey Dahmer was gay, but he still received um, letters and pictures of women and those are just two examples, but it happens all the time. Like, these these killers and these ruiners of lives get people who support them and send them things and pictures and talk to them. And like I said, I don't understand it. I think it's wrong, but it's their right to do that. Now, there was a lot of talk if James Holmes would be found competent to even stand trial. His defense lawyers argued that he was not. He would not be competent. The defense argued that he was mentally insane when he charged into the theater, but the prosecution said that he knew exactly what he was doing, and they mentioned his capital point, human capital point system, saying that he knew what he was doing, and he knew that he wanted to acquire more points for the deaths. Now, I'm going to tell you as much information as I can about the victims whose lives were lost at the hands of James Holmes. This podcast shouldn't be all about the horrible demons who took the lives of these people, and I found out as much as I could about the victims, and I'm going to talk about them now. One of the victims, named Veronica, was only six years old when her life was taken by James the night of July 20th, 2012. She had just learned to swim. She had her entire life ahead of her. She had a loving family. She was shot four times, and her pregnant mother, Ashley, was also shot twice. And Ashley was pregnant, and that baby, that unborn baby, died also as a result of her wounds. And Ashley, Veronica's mother, is permanently paralyzed from the waist down. And that's the call you heard, Kaylin Bailey. She bravely called while she tried to perform CPR on her her cousin, Veronica, but to no avail. Ashley lost her baby, like I said, and Ashley lost her six-year-old baby. And I can't imagine the grief, pain, anger, turmoil she went through and is still fighting today. Being paralyzed from the waist down, that's a remembrance. Obviously, you're never going to forget your children. But having that physical remembrance every single day, I can't imagine. Another victim, Jonathan Blunk, B-L-U-N-K. He was a 26-year-old Navy veteran. He had gone to see the movie with his girlfriend, Jansen. Jonathan was a good man who loved his family. He was super attentive, very caring. When the shooting began, he bravely threw himself over top of his girlfriend to save her. And he was shot in the head and died while on top of Jansen. He died heroically trying to save her life, and he did save her life. She managed to get out of there. Rebecca Wingo was a 32-year-old Air Force vet, and she was seated in the theater when James began shooting. She was a mother of two young kids at the time, and she was fluent in Mandarin Chinese. She was working as a translator. She was so excited because her daughter was going to start kindergarten that year. She was struck five times while in the theater, and she died next to her friend, Marcus Weaver, who was also shot but managed to escape. Gordon Cowden and his two daughters, Brooke and Sierra, were sitting in row 13 when James began firing. Gordon was a small business owner, a loving father, and an avid outdoorsman. He was described as, quote, true Texas gentleman, end quote. Gordon tried to lead his daughters to safety, but was shot and died instantly. His daughters, however, thankfully did manage to escape the theater unharmed. Alexander Thieves and his daughter, Am- or and his girlfriend, excuse me, Alanda Lindgren, were at the movie, and they sat in the back of the theater in row 18. Alexander had just graduated that year, June 2012, with a degree in counseling psychology. When James started shooting, Alexander bravely threw himself over Amanda to protect her. He was shot in the head and killed by James Holmes. Amanda later changed her last name to Teves out of love for her heroic boyfriend, gosh, whom she loved so dearly. A.J. Boyk was an 18-year-old high school graduate, and he was attending the show with his girlfriend and another friend when he was gunned down by Holmes. He was bright, smart, and left a family reeling from their loss. His uncle said at his funeral, quote, He is still with us, and I know that I feel his spirit floating in the breeze, end quote. Sergeant Jesse Childress was an Air Force reservist, and this is a quote by Lieutenant Colonel Pat Walsh. Quote, Jesse was an invaluable part of the 310th family. He literally touched everyone in the wing. Over a thousand people, End quote. And another person said, This is Air, Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Schwald. He said, quote, Jesse Childress was a huge part of our unit, and this is a terrible loss. The person that did this was an incredible coward, end quote, and that was sent to the Denver Post. Matt McQuinn, a 27-year-old man attending the theater with his girlfriend and his girlfriend's brother, died while trying to protect her. David Jackson, who was the victim's stepfather, told WHIO, quote, I know he's a hero. He and Sam were very much in love and planning their life together. I'm sure they were thinking very seriously of getting married soon, end quote. Matt had only just recently moved to Colorado from Ohio. Michaela Medic. She was a 23-year-old girl. She had plans to graduate college in 2015. Her friends called her Kayla, and she was gunned down in the theater that fateful night. She described herself on her Facebook page as, quote, I'm a simple, independent girl who's just trying to get her life together while still having fun, end quote. Alex Sullivan was a 27-year-old man who was two days away From celebrating his one-year wedding anniversary with his wife, he was at the movie to celebrate his birthday, and he actually worked at the theater. But he was off for the night, and he just wanted to relax and enjoy his celebrations. Alex Sullivan died by Holmes's bullets. Jessica Guani, she also went by the name Jessica Redfield. She was a 24-year-old woman who wanted to be a sports journalist. And one crazy detail I found about about her was she was actually in another active shooting situation in toronto only a month before she was faced with this situation in aurora colorado and what are the odds and i can't imagine what she must have felt when she realized that this was happening to her again for the second time i just can't imagine what she would have felt she wrote actually about the toronto incident she said quote i was shown how fragile life was on saturday i saw the terror on bystanders faces i saw the victims of a senseless crime i saw lives change I was reminded that we don't know when or where our time on Earth will end, when or where we will breathe our last breath." End quote. John Thomas Larimer was also in the theater when James Holmes began shooting. John was a Navy petty officer. He worked as a cryptologic technician. He decided to, father in, uh, to follow in his dad and grandfather's footsteps to join the Navy. He had only been serving his first year, and he was at his first posting when he'd been killed. And I just want to mention, um, in my opinion, I believe there were 13 murdered victims. Veronica's um, unborn baby do- baby sibling um, died also in the womb. So now I'm going to talk about the trial and the sentencing. Chris uh, wrote a letter that, uh, sorry, I hit my mic. Chris wrote a letter uh, to her brother, and I just want to read that book to you right now or excuse me, that, that book. I want you to read that letter. So Chris wrote this letter to... Wow, I'm messing up. I'm sorry. That Reading about those victims, that, was, that really shook me up. Okay, so James wrote a letter to his sister, Chris, and Chris ended up reading this at the trial, and it says this, quote, Dear Chris, I love you, Chris. I wish you could play basketball and soccer with me. I wish you could play light bright you have a soft cute skin you're a happy baby i wish you could play marbles with me you can when you grow up you need four more years love your brother jimmy end quote and she read this um in court on july 16th 2015 a jury rejected the defendant james holmes insanity defense and a jury found him guilty of 24 first degree murder charges and if you're like 24, what? That's two for each murdered person, each 12 people. And they found him guilty also of 140 counts of attempted murder. And that's two counts for each of the 70 people who were injured. There were 70 people in the theater who had injuries because of James Holmes that day. And so, thank, thank goodness they found him um, guilty. I just can't imagine if he could have gotten away with it. I don't know how, obviously, he. but you never know. August 7th, 2015, we're at the sentencing. Um, they had tried, the, the prosecution had tried to go for the death penalty, but the jury couldn't all agree that James Holmes deserved the death penalty. Eleven were for it, but one juror couldn't be swayed. And so instead he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murders of the 12 people. And in addition to all the um, sentencing that he was found fa- um, that I read earlier, he was also sentenced to an additional three thousand two hundred years for attempted murder and explosives conviction. Now, victims' families were allowed to testify and speak out over what they had experienced since the shooting, how their lives were ruined, and over a hundred individuals spoke out. Many of the victims that attended wore Batman shirts when addressing James Holmes. Afterwards, one interesting thing, too, James Holmes never appealed his conviction. Um, Let's talk about some more of the aftermath. The aftermath of the atrocities, some good things came out of it, let's say. U.S. Representatives Ed Perlmutter and Jason Crow they introduced a resolution to make July 20th National Heroes Day, which I think is just amazing and is making me tear up thinking about it. According to Fox 31 News, quote, the resolution would honor victims, first responders, and speci- specifically recognize four people killed while shielding others inside the theater. Jonathan Bulk, John Larimer, Matt McQuinn, and Alex Teves. And it also recognizes everyday heroes, particularly in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. So I think that's really special. The July 20th is National Heroes Day. Um, the family of the victims uh, who were in the theater, they tried to sue the movie theater. They tried to uh, sue Mark and the Century Theater. Um, unfortunately, they didn't get that. Um, they didn't uh, win that ruling, unfortunately. Um, they, the jury A jury found that the theater was not responsible for what had happened, and the family was really just looking for just some answers. You know, you really can't... Um, you can't judge what what happened at all and and they the family argued that there should have been extra security there the theater should have done something to prevent this from happening like maybe and I agree with that like I agree the theater should have prevented something like him going outside the exit doors of the auditorium why weren't the exit doors like set to make this extremely loud noise you know like why weren't they Uh, set like with an alarm system or something so I agree I don't think the family I think the theater should have been held accountable for at least something and the family also wanted to fight for this to make sure that this wouldn't happen to other moviegoers. that movie theaters would be safe for other families but unfortunately they did not win that ruling and he is still incarcerated right now James Holmes is still behind bars and uh, it, it's such a, such a sad story. It's, it's such a heavy, heavy story. Um, but it's an important one. Uh, just the mental health aspect of it, too, and just the fact that so many people's lives were ruined by him. It's just really, really sad. Guys, I want you to stay safe, all right? If you notice someone struggling, speak out, say something, stay safe. This world is a scary, dangerous, dangerous place, guys, and I need you to stay safe. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you all. I'll be back in two weeks with another in-depth, deep episode. In the meantime, be checking out all my social medias on Instagram and Facebook. For those Addicted to Crime shorts, I will be posting shorter episodes sometime soon, Um, and again, you'll see me. I'll be on a video. Guys, stay safe. I love you. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.